Okay, people. Um, well, I've discovered a disaster. I haven't got the. I, you know, carefully put together all your questions out of the uh, about the Sabbath, uh, and I haven't got the piece of paper with them on. And I'm not sure what happened. Ah, yeah, that's true. I can remember one or two of them, uh, but um, uh, the good. Well, I don't know about that. Probably the difficult one. I don't know. But um, uh, so, in due course, I will invite you to uh, uh, share your your questions with us uh, if you would like to, and I'll try and deal with them. So I apologise for my inefficiency. Um, so I'm on page 35, though. Initially, uh, I'm going to um, talk about some of the basic passages uh, about Sabbath um, and a bit about as it were, what, what kind of process we're invo- I'm involved in in doing that. So we're interested both in, uh, in what we discover um, uh, about the Sabbath, but also in the kind of hermeneutical process that uh, goes on within Scripture and goes on with us. Um, <clears throat> First, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy... Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to, to, to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and consecrated it. Uh, and that passage clearly refers back to the story in Genesis 1 uh, of the creation that comes uh, arguably to its climax uh, with God um, stopping. Um, resting, in a way, is a misleading uh, expression in that particular context uh, because there uh, it's, it's resting in the same sense as the... Where it's the same word as is used for when uh, Noah's Ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It simply comes to stop. Um, uh, and the uh, story of creation then is one in which God worked and then God stopped. Uh, and the, what the uh, but but there's no there's nothing it says there in Genesis about this being something that human beings have to imitate. Um, and no account of the observance of the Sabbath all the way through Genesis, um, not until um, Exodus chapter sixteen. Uh, which talks about the, the manner, do you get a reference to the Sabbath? Um, so there's a kind of slightly paradoxical question here of, this is something that's written into the way that God created the world, but not apparently something that's written into, it's not part of natural revelation. The whole world, um, uh, peoples other than Israel didn't observe the, the, a weekly Sabbath. They often had, they had, they may have had some days um, that were days of stopping, but there's no weekly Sabbath outside of Israel. Uh, somebody I remember did ask about the new moon um, in um, Mesopotamia, for instance. Uh, both the new moon and the full moon were very important days. Um, in the Old Testament, there's no reference to the full moon being significant at all. Um, the new moon is significant, and it's an exam- it is an example of something that the Sabbath also illustrates, um, that uh, moments of transition 
uh, are important. And the Sabbath is a moment of transition. In the Genesis story, there's a kind of linear relationship between six days of work and one day um, of stopping. But, but once you get beyond that first week, as it were, there's um, a, an interplay between days of work and day and, and the stopping day. And the stopping day uh, is the interface um, the, between um, the weeks of work, um, the moment of transition. The new moon is a moment of transition. Uh, the times to pray uh, are the um, dawning and twilight, the, the point when uh, night gives way to day and when day gives way to night are the natural times to pray, the times at which you offer sacrifices. Um, and that's the background to that um, significance of the new moon in some of the passages that, um, that you read. The Exodus commandment then um, traces the importance of the Sabbath back to the way that God created the world um, and, uh, and notes how God blessed the Sabbath day uh, and consecrated it. Blessing it is a kind of odd thing to do, really, because almost invariably in Scripture, the only things that you bless are things that move, things that are alive. Um, so uh, if you're with these troublesome School of Theology students at a dinner um, and you attempt to bless the food, they may tell you, can't do that, can't bless food, inanimate object. They probably don't because the theology students are totally ignorant and they don't know that that's true. Um, uh, but it is the case that more or less invariably in Scripture, it's only living things that you bless because what you do when you bless something is make it productive. That's why God does a lot of blessing in Genesis 1, because God is blessing the animals and the human uh, creation and so on, and thereby giving it the power to be fruitful. Um, so it is actually an interesting thing that God should bless the Sabbath. Perhaps it, perhaps it does uh, suggest that God is making the Sabbath fruitful. Though the other odd way of using the verb to bless is when we talk about us blessing God which when you think about it is a pretty weird thing to talk about, us, I mean, particularly if it means making fruitful or something. Uh, and hence, rightly, um, some modern translations, I think the NIV, um, have stopped having the Psalms talk about blessing God and they say, um, they talk in terms of God, uh, 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 and they talk in terms of praising God rather than blessing God. And I think that's probably right um, in that the... Uh, the word to bless is very similar to the Hebrew, word verb, uh, the Hebrew word for the knee. So when you are praising God, you are kind of going down on, you, on your knees before God. Maybe then what God is doing when God is blessing the Sabbath is praising the Sabbath. Um, so God's blessing the Sabbath is itself a striking thing. God's consecrating it is also worth noting. In Genesis, there's virtually no reference to holiness. Um, but this is actually one of the... Um, just two or three references to holiness in Genesis when God makes the Sabbath day holy, makes the Sabbath day something separate. Some, the notion of holiness is of being different. Um, so here is a day that God makes different, uh, and it's a stopping day. God stopped, you stopped, you, you stop. You recognize this day belongs to Yahweh. Um, again, in the postings, it's going to be okay. I keep remembering the postings. Somebody wanted to know, what does it mean to talk about a Sabbath to Yahweh? Um, and I think the answer to that is, it's, it's a, it's, is that the Sabbath belongs to God in a special way. 
you, you give God a tithe because God, God claims a tithe. I'm going to talk about tithes some more in a minute. Um, when you give God the first fruits of the harvest, as it were, God claims them. They belong to God. Um, you give God the first um, of the uh, lambs that your sheep um, give birth to. Um, because they, the first ones belong to God. Uh, and God claims the Sabbath in a similar kind of way. That's my time, says God. Keep off it. Um, and you keep off it by not doing things on it. So first, um, uh, recognize that the Sabbath belongs um, to God. Uh, chapter 23, verse 12 of Exodus. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have relief, and your home-born slave and the resident alien may be refreshed. Now there, uh, it's explicitly not talking simply about stopping, but about resting. Um, and it's not only um, a matter of you resting, but it's, it's a matter of um, not even just your family, which the Exodus uh, 20 commandment said, but also your animals um, and your servants and your resident aliens, the uh, slaves or servants uh, and the resident aliens, were the people who didn't belong in the full sense to your family. They weren't born in your family. But a servant or a slave, uh, don't think of it in terms of African-American slavery. It's, it's more like Filipino, what do you call those home, those girls who come and work in, in somebody's, domestic, like, like a helper. Do you have a word for that? Sorry? You were, you were doing something entirely different. I'm sorry, Neil. Yes, sorry. You know that in, in Filipino culture, it's common to, for, a, to, for a family to have a girl maybe from the country who comes and helps with the family as, as a servant and who lives with the family. Um, and like a specific term? Yes, do you have a specific term for that? No. Not, no. Not anymore. I mean, we still practice it. It's definitely linked to earlier Filipino traditions, but right. we don't necessarily have a word for it. Right. But, but you still have the practice. Yeah, the and, practice and the spirit of it is Yeah, so somebody, a girl will come and live with the family, will get paid a certain amount, will uh, be able to get some education on the back of that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and isn't a full member of the family, but is a servant. And I think uh, a practice like that gives you more, uh, a better impression of the nature of servitude, the nature of servanthood um, uh, in the Old Testament um, than the word slavery, which tends for us to carry the connotations of uh, being chattels and being able to, and people in chain gangs and that kind of thing. Um, but your servants need, must be allowed to rest um, on the Sabbath. The fact that you're, um, the fact that you're, and likewise the resident alien. Um, now I'm a resident alien. I pay, ta I have taxes, but no representation. <laughs> um, but of course I'm a, I'm a relatively well-off resident alien. The resident aliens that the Old Testament is talking about are again people who've taken refuge in Israel because they were under pressure in need uh, in some way and so could easily be taken advantage of by a family in the same way as a servant could. Um, and so what the rules here do uh, is say, not only must you rest because you're an Israelite, but the people amongst you who don't technically count as Israelites, you can't say they don't need to rest because they don't count as Israelites. You've got to let them rest as well, even your animals. Uh, who sort of belong to the family, sort of belong to the community. They rest too. Um, chapter 31 uh, is um, a requirement to...
to keep the Sabbath that, that comes um, at the end of the regulations for how to go about building the sanctuary in the wilderness. Um, and it's um, repeated in connection with the actual account of the building of the sanctuary. Um, and an implication then is that uh, even when you're involved in this very important work for God of building the sanctuary, you've still got to observe the Sabbath. Um, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, given in order that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to, to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the seventh day shall be put to death. Therefore the Israelites shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Even God was refreshed on the Sabbath day, by the way, uh, there. It doesn't say that in Genesis, but it says it here in Exodus. Well, two or three things about that. Uh, one is this, that even when you're involved in this really important work for God, that doesn't override the Sabbath. Um, then uh, that worrying declaration that anybody who profanes the Sabbath is to be put to death. Um, now, one of the things, though, that is illustrated by, that, that, that by this regulation is something that runs through the way that Old Testament laws work, which is there are lots of laws in the Old Testament that say you should be put to death for doing this or that. But whenever you go on to read the rest of the Old Testament, nobody gets put to death for them. So um, there are accounts uh, later on, for instance, in, uh, in Nehemiah as well as in uh, Amos and elsewhere um, of people not keeping the Sabbath. But nowhere do they get put, put to death for it. Uh, and that's not a peculiarity about the rules about the Sabbath. Uh, there is a requirement that um, if you commit adultery, you should be put to death. Of course, there's a requirement. Well, I mean, of course, but there is a requirement uh, that if you murder somebody, you should be put to death. There are lots of stories later on in the Old Testament about people committing murder and people committing adultery. Nobody ever gets put to death for it. Um, you, idolatry is something you ought to be put to death for. Later in the Old Testament, nobody ever gets put to death for it. What's going on here then? Uh, not, uh, probably, well I think certainly, that simply that the Israelites later on didn't obey, that the rules were meant to be literally implemented and that the Israelites didn't um, later on implement them. Um, it's rather that we kind of misunderstand uh, these um, pieces of instruction when, when we take them to be uh, legal regulations in our kind of sense. Um, that, to, that there's a long other um, list of things which um, have execute, the threat of execution attached to them um, and I'm tempted to say, and you can tell I'm about to give in, um, that if all those people got executed, there'd be nobody left. Um, but to attach the threat of execution uh, to these things was a way of saying how really um, important these rules were. Um, and I take it that that's, the Sabbath then is amongst those. There is a story uh, about the, the man in the wilderness who does um, get... Uh, stoned for um, disobeying, failing, failing to keep the Sabbath. But that, but that stands out. 
Um, that's not regularly what happened. And so when one looks at a story like that, um, it, it's more like there are several odd stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament, scary stories really, uh, about the Old Testament and the New Testament, about, uh, in, within the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, of that kind. Uh, the, um, the New Testament one uh, is the account in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira who um, say that they are pledging their giving um, but falsify their pledges um, and uh, get confronted by Peter who um, declares to Ananias that he hasn't lied to uh, the apostles but to God and when Ananias hears that he falls down and dies uh, and then his wife comes in uh, and Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Well, I bet it did. Um, I mean, it's another um, reason, or it's a reason, uh, if you like, for being hesitant about wishing that you were a member of the early church. Uh, it was pretty dangerous. It was pretty, pretty wild west, really. Um, being, being in Israel at the time of the Exodus, or being at the church at the beginning. Um, and uh, there were uh, evidently some, there were extraordinary things that happened. Extraordinary great things that happened, but extraordinary scary things that happened. Um, but the, the, the rarity of those stories... Um, and the, the way in which they, they're, they're tied up with, they're associated with the very beginnings of God working out his purpose. Um, and, uh, and that they haven't been the kind of thing that have been happening through, that happened through Israel's history, or that happened through the church's history. Um, makes one more uh, reflect on the high stakes that there were uh, in those beginnings, uh, than to be afraid that if you don't keep your pledge next week, you might drop dead because it doesn't actually seem to happen um, and so we can kind of be awed by those stories um, like the story about the man gathering wood or the story of Ananias and Sapphira um, but, but they look as if they belong to a different time and we don't have to be um, scared by them um, one other point about the way in which that Exodus 31 passage talks about um, death that may come for not keeping the Sabbath properly. Um, Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it shall be cut off from among the people. And there, again, there are lots of um, references in the Torah to being cut off. Uh, and it may be it's more... The danger that the, the, and the references to being cut off don't seem to be references to something that the human beings have to do. It's something that you risk God doing. So passages like this are again saying you put yourself in a perilous relationship um, with God if you take no notice of things that God regards uh, as really serious. God might cut you off from the community um, if, uh, if you take no notice of the kind of things that God requires. Um, the fourth passage I've remembered, uh, the fourth, fourth passage I've put down is Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second version of the Ten Commandments.
observe the Sabbath day, um, I, I don't, somebody wanted to know, well, what's the significance between, of the difference between remembering the Sabbath day and observing the Sabbath day, and I don't know. Um, uh, it's just a different way of putting essentially the same point, I think, really. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave uh, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Two or three things about that. One is that Deuteronomy loves to make sure uh, that you realise that things apply to women and not just to men. Um, and so the Exodus commandments uh, don't refer uh, to women. The uh, Deuteronomy commandment makes clear that it applies to your daughter as well as your son, to your female slave as well as your male slave, um, and so that nobody, everybody, men and women, uh, free and uh, slave, human and animal, uh, everybody observes the Sabbath. Then, but the a second thing that is noteworthy about uh, the Deuteronomy version of the command is that whereas Exodus based the command upon the way that God went about creation, Deuteronomy bases the command on the way that God went about redemption, uh, went about delivering the people from Egypt. What you have to do uh, on the Sabbath, uh, or in connection with observing the Sabbath, is not only remember the way that God created the world, Exodus, but remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And that's the reason uh, in, this, uh, in the Deuteronomy version for emphasising more than once the uh, position of servants. It's your male, and female, your male or female servant is mentioned in um, verse 14 uh, and uh, at, at the beginning of verse 14 and then at the end, again at the end of verse 14. Um, and the reason for that is um, that you should remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt. You're, you ought to be considerate towards uh, the members of your household who have this servant status, because that's the status that you had. You know the kind of God that God is. God was the kind of God who created the world and then took a day off. But God, God was also the kind of God who went into a context where people were, where the whole, where the whole um, uh, nation were, were servants, were serfs uh, of Pharaoh, and rescued them. And therefore, surely, you can see that you ought to want that your servants should have a decent kind of life, um, given who you know God, God is. Um, Amos chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 13, with um, the same point essentially to make, interestingly, in two totally different um, historical contexts. Um, and that illustrates a um, perpetual temptation with regard to the Sabbath, the way at a, a pressure upon observing the Sabbath, which one can see very clearly um, in our own culture, um, I suggest. Uh, Amos chapter 8. Uh, listen to this, you that trample on the needy, you that bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? 
We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. Now, all the ways there that Amos is talking is about uh, the way in which people are making commercial considerations, uh, the overriding ones. So they're swindling people. Um, They increase the weights um, so that you uh, get less of grain or they give you less grain than than you're paying for practicing deceit with false balances, um, but also concerned that, commer- that, that commercial activity should not be held back by the observance of the Sabbath. Um, now, that's in the 8th century BC. Uh, Nehemiah uh, belongs to the 5th century BC. Amos is right at the beginning of the period of the prophets. Amos, uh, Nehemiah is right at the end Uh, of the period that the Old Testament really talks about, not the end of the Old Testament period, which goes on for some more centuries, um, but the end of the the Old Testament history. Uh, Three centuries apart, but with the same kind of issue uh, arising. I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them at that time against selling food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, people from Tyre, brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I remonstrated with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your ancestors act in this way? and Did not our God bring all the disaster on on us and on this city? Yet you bring more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And I set some of my servants over the gates to prevent any burden from being brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. Nehemiah was not a guy to be messed with. To mess with. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Uh, You see there, then, how commercial pressures, the desire to make some money, uh, override considerations of Sabbath observance. You do not have to jump very far uh, to see the um, context in which we ourselves live. Um, Isaiah 56 Um, thus says the Lord maintain justice do what is right for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed happy is the mortal who does this the one who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it and refrains from doing any evil do not let the foreigner join to the Lord, say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, I won't, they won't accept me. God won't accept me as his people because I'm a foreigner. Don't let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. I can't be a real Israelite. A eunuch is presumably an Israelite, but he can't, but he, but he can't procreate children. Uh, and therefore he can't really be a full part of the people. Um, can't contribute to the, uh, uh, the growth of the people. That's the temptation both for foreigners and for eunuchs is to say they don't really belong. And I imagine what that's implying is uh, that the temptation is for Israelites to say, you foreigners, you eunuchs, you don't really belong. But 
Thus says the Lord, to the, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. The expression of monument and a name in Hebrew is Yad Vashem, uh, literally a hand and a name, which is the name of the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and don't profane it and hold fast to my covenant, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Verse that Jesus picks up. Now, here is a big stress on the Sabbath. If you keep the Sabbath, then it doesn't matter that you're a eunuch. And if you keep the Sabbath as a foreigner, you're welcome. Uh, and it links with the way it talks about covenant and links with the way that passage in Exodus 31 talks about covenant. That Sabbath has become a co the covenant sign. Now, that's not the way Amos talks. It's not the way that the Ten Commandments talk. Um, but it's probably significant that in the post-exilic period to which Isaiah 56 belongs, that's the context in which this phrase occurs. Because uh, in, for much of Israel's story, the natural thing would be to observe the Sabbath in the sense that the whole community is expected to do that. It's still the case to some extent, I think, in Jerusalem, until very recently it was the case. The whole place closes down uh, nowadays um, on late Friday afternoon. You can almost hear the place quietening down. Uh, the buses don't run. Nothing happens uh, from Friday tea time till, uh, from t till Saturday tea time. And so, if you're not going to observe, the, the, the challenge is not observing the Sabbath. The challenge is finding a party, or a movie, or a theatre or something, because they're all closed. Um, it's not an effort to observe the Sabbath, because everybody's doing it. On the other hand, if you live in Tel Aviv today, it would be very different. If you lived in Haifa today, it would be very different. If you live in Los Angeles, or New York, or London, where there are big Jewish communities, um, uh, you stand out if you observe the Sabbath then, uh, in Los Angeles, or New York, or London. The context, uh, the background of Isaiah 56 um, is one that you can also see implicit in the Nehemiah passage. That is, now in the post-exilic period, there's not a big Israelite nation that are all observing the Sabbath. Um, there's rather a little beleaguered community um, centred on Jerusalem, but no more than the size of what we would call a county. And the other counties around are other countries in effect. The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Sumerians um, are, uh, as it were, it's as if uh, Ventura County and Orange County and so on were foreign, were, straight, were foreign countries. Actually, I was in Orange County on Friday. It is a foreign country, isn't it, really? Orange <laughs> County. I was thinking it's just like that. It's, yeah, anyway. It's, um, there are other countries with, with other religions. Um, and so these guys from Tyre, they like coming to Jerusalem to sell their fish, um, uh, especially on the Sabbath when it's quiet. I mean, it's a great day to be able to do some... Um, people aren't working, so they can go shopping. Uh, and so, being willing to observe the Sabbath comes to be the marker of being an Israelite. It comes to sum up, sum up the covenant. That's why it's the covenant sign uh, in Exodus 31, and also why it's the expression of holding fast my covenant in Isaiah 56. Um... Luther um, uh, is quoted at least 
as talking about things that were the marker of, the church, of whether the church stands or falls. Um, the marker of the falling or the standing church. Um, and suggesting, and I think actually Sola Scriptura was again the, one that he, the thing that he talked about. But in different contexts, something different will be the thing that marks out the people of God. And it will be different in different contexts because the cultural context will put the pressure on in different sorts of ways. In the context of the post-exilic period in Israel, then observing the Sabbath becomes the, the marker of the standing or falling church, people of God. If they observe the, if they observe the Sabbath, then that's the, uh, the cutting edge um, of what the covenant requirement is because people around don't observe it. Um, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus goes through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples are hungry. They begin to pluck heads of grain to eat. The Pharisees see it and say to them, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Um, the Pharisees were... They were doing their best in a way. You have to kind of feel a bit sorry for them. They, they wanted to make sure that you really did observe um, God's requirements. And so they attempted to do what they called uh, putting a fence around the law. Um, to, sort of sa- to safeguard uh, the law by making sure not only that you did exactly what the law said, but you didn't go anywhere near doing what the law said. In a way, Eve was doing it. When, when the serpent says to Eve, aren't you allowed to uh, eat any of the fruit of the tree? And, and she says, uh, we aren't allowed to eat the fruit of that tree and we aren't allowed to touch it. Now, that wasn't what God had said to Adam originally. Now, maybe there was slippage between God and Adam and Eve because God hadn't said it to Eve and so Eve was reliant on Adam and maybe it's like, um, I forgot, uh, what do you call it? Telephone. Um, yeah. But anyway... Um, but maybe Eve is doing the right thing when she says, we're not even going to touch it. Maybe Adam was doing the right thing if he thought to himself, okay, God says don't eat it, I'm going to tell Eve not even to touch it. There's wisdom in keeping one step away from any possible um, transgression. And that's what the Pharisees at their best were trying to do. It's what Jews do today about observing the Sabbath. I remember being struck when the first time I went to um, see the Sinai uh, that, uh, on, a, on, a, on a Saturday to visit somebody. Um, when the elevators stop at every floor so that uh, you don't have to make the elevator stop um, because pressing the button means an electric spark uh, goes and that might count as, um, uh, as lighting a fire, which is specifically a thing that the Torah uh, forbids. And likewise, Orthodox Jews won't uh, light their, uh, their oven to cook dinner um, on the Sabbath, um, again, for the same reason. Now, that can be legalism, uh, but it can be a, a, a right concern to make sure that you obey God's instructions in every detail. At their best, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Um, but as we see them portrayed in the Gospels, it, it's for, it falls into uh, legalism. Uh, Jesus' reply uh, is, well, David wasn't a legalist, was he, in effect? Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests and the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? 
I tell you something greater than the Sabbath is here. But if you had known what this means, I design mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and then Jesus goes on and heals a guy on the Sabbath. And there are a number of stories about conflict about the Sabbath um, between Jesus uh, and uh, other Jews of the day. The particular thing that he points to here is that a concern about proper observance of the Sabbath uh, can become something which is actually, well, in one sense it's costly, but in another thing it avoids the real cost uh, of obedience to God. Because God, what, God, what God is really interested in uh, is mercy and not sacrifice. If there's, a, if there's a choice between the two, no good thinking you can offer lots of sacrifices and then you needn't bother um, about being merciful. If you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned these guys who are just uh, eating some grain as they walk through a field, which doesn't really count as uh, work. Um, he is happy to heal on the Sabbath, to do good um, on the Sabbath. Um, as he, uh, the, the, the succeeding story shows, he left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand. They asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He reminds them of a point about um, their own lives. He said to them, supposing one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't you lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored as, as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, in some of, some of your posts, um, not just, not just um, this one I think, I think I felt it before. I think you have a temptation or an inclination to a kind of legalism or rationalism. Uh, you want to be told as a Christian which 714 things you need to do and which 298 things not to do. And then you can go and do them or not do them and you're okay. Um, and um, I don't get the impression from the Bible that it's like that. Um, and uh, in particular, it's not like that in the light of Christ's coming um, and uh, Christ's releasing uh, people from the obligation to um, be uh, obedient to the Torah. Um, I'll come to that again uh, in connection with Colossians 2 in a minute. Um, but, but note the way there in which Jesus won't be dragged into um, a kind of legal understanding. Um, well, yeah, let me be, let me be paradoxical. Um, Jesus won't be dragged into a legal understanding of the law. Um, thank you. Laughter. I get very little laughter. This has um, been a great evening. I invite you all to scones on the strength of that. Um, have I told you that the, or somebody told you, that the Hebrew word Torah doesn't mean law? Not really. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm about to tell you. You can tell that, can't you? Um, the, the, the word for the Pentateuch um, the Hebrew word for it is Torah, and the word that uh, the Hebrew word that lies behind the word law, as you get it in the Gospels, is the word Torah. But the word, the very fact that the Pentateuch is called the Torah, shows you that the word Torah doesn't mean law, because Genesis isn't law, is it? 
But Genesis is the first book in the Torah. Torah is a word that means, um, means teaching, really. I am, at the moment, being a more, which is from the same word. I am, I am being a teacher. To sharpen it slightly, Torah means, does mean instruction. Um, but instruction, then, can have a content in terms of um, statements about how things are, uh, but also, as well as statements about things you ought to go and do. The, the, the five books of Torah are five books of teaching or five books of instruction about how God, what God did with Israel and how God related to Israel, as well as about things that God told Israel to go and do. But the very fact that the Torah is called the Torah shows it's not a, a legal or legalistic kind of document. The law is not legal. Um, now, and, and indeed, in the, in, within the context of some of the laws in the Pentateuch, there are some other words that you could translate law, words that get translated by words like statute. Those are legal kind of words. Torah isn't a legal kind of word. Um, and um, I think that actually fits with the point I was making about penalties, execution and whatnot earlier on, that even when it's sounding as if it's being law, uh, it's not being law. It's, it's, doing, it's giving you teaching in the form of something like law, in the form of commands. Um, Unfortunately, what happened is that when the word Torah was translated into Greek, it was translated as nomos, the Greek word for law. And so then when the Greek Bible was translated into Latin, uh, it, they used the Latin word for law, lex. And so when the Latin Bible got translated into English, French, Spanish, German, all, and all sorts of other languages, um, then in those languages they used the word that would be the equivalent of law. Um, in those languages, uh, but thereby misled us about the significance of Torah. Um, uh, but Jesus, uh, in the way that he argues here with the Pharisees, shows that he does not have a legal understanding of law. He doesn't, he doesn't see um, the, the Torah um, as law in the way in which the Pharisees himself, themselves were in danger of doing. Uh, Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Um, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he goes in for teaching on the basis of that scripture. Uh, here is Jesus, uh, typically, Luke says, um, on the Sabbath day going to the synagogue um, and, uh, in, and, and doing that in order to read the scriptures and to teach on the basis of the scriptures um, and to pray as you would do in the, in the, in the synagogue service. Uh, synagogue uh, is very like church, in other words, therefore, or rather church is very like synagogue. That is, when churches started having services, um, they, they were synagogue services kind of adapted. 
Um, uh, and indeed, the, in the church services, they would still be reading from the Old Testament scriptures because that's the only scriptures they got. They'd be telling stories about Jesus as well. And then a century or two later, um, they'd be reading gospels and epistles and whatnot. Um, but the basic notion of church, uh, what happens there, is based uh, on what happened in the synagogue. Um, what the Christians started doing was meeting um, on the Lord's Day, which was the Lord's Day because it was Resurrection Day, on the first day. Uh, so uh, doing a thing on Sunday, on the first day of the week, presumably in the evening because they went to work during the day, uh, of the kind that they would have been doing in the synagogue um, over the weekend. Now, and now within the uh, New Testament, uh, there's no suggestion that what they were doing on the Lord's Day was observing the Sabbath because everyone knows the Sabbath is Saturday. Uh, it, it was uh, gradually over a period of centuries um, that the church drifted into um, turning Sunday uh, into the Sabbath day. And it did that, as I was saying before the break. That's a piece of church tradition. It's not something for which there is any basis, um, uh, any um, instruction uh, within the New Testament. Uh, and uh, so don't get into an argument with a Seventh-day Adventist um, because they probably will beat you in the argument. Uh, because uh, they're saying, we're just doing what God told us to do. Um, what, what, what right has the church got to decide on which day is God's Sabbath? Um, and so if you're um, uh, a pastor or even a therapist and you have the chance to um, treat Saturday as your day off, then you can be very kind of um, prou proud uh, and self-righteous about doing that. Uh, and not then worry about if you w work on Sunday, as long as you did have Saturday off. Which I'm a bit, I'm a bit inclined to myself. One of we wanted to know, okay, John, how do you observe Sabbath? And that's, I, I hate that question. Um, because I'm not as bad as some of you. Um, and, I, and I haven't got parents who are telling me to get, get on with my homework. Um, and I usually let myself not get on with my homework on Sunday. I mean, I don't do grading and unpleasant things like that. Actually, I do, because that's when I was, that's probably judgment time. That's why I've lost these Sabbath things, because it was Sunday night that I was looking at all your postings. You see, I've been under judgment. At least I wasn't struck down dead. Anyway, um, where was I? Um, no, I'm going to say it in a minute. Let me talk about the Colossians passage first. Therefore do not let anybody condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, new moons or Sabbaths. Now what that, what that surely must imply is that the Sabbath as much as any other uh, instruction in the Torah isn't something that's binding on people who believe in Jesus. Uh, it's, observance of the Sabbath is not something that was required of Gentiles under the Old Covenant. Not like draining blood, I mean, to make, you know, to make things complicated, the rule about draining blood out of an animal, that was required of Gentiles. That's, that's part of the Noah deal. But the Sabbath wasn't part of the Noah rules. Um, and uh, so, uh, I mean, a big issue in the early church was when people come to believe, when Gentiles come to believe in Jesus, do they have to take on the obligation to keep the rules in the Torah? Um, and Paul is very insistent that no, that, that must not be the case. Um, and is very, is, is very concerned to argue uh, in Romans and Galatians as well as in Colossians. 
um, that uh, the Torah is not binding upon Gentiles. It's not binding on Jews. Um, I mean, if Jews want to observe the Torah, okay. But you mustn't make it binding even on Jews now, now that Jesus has come. Because all those things were a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't let anybody pass, in, pass judgment on you in any of that stuff, says Paul. Um, now, that doesn't mean that all the stuff in the Torah ceases, ceases to be relevant to anybody. I mean, it, it, because you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that when it says you mustn't murder, you can murder anybody you like. Or you mustn't commit adultery, it's okay, you're free, you can have it off with anybody you like. Um, but, but the reason why you don't murder people and you don't commit adultery and you don't steal and all that isn't simply that it says that in the Torah. It's because the reason why those things appear in the Torah is because those are things that are important to God because of who God is and because of who we are. Um, and, and the Torah then remains there as a kind of guide, an embodiment of um, concerns of God's that are um, worked out in a particular context. And so provide guidance um, to us in different contexts. Um, uh, and so what we do with regard to the Sabbath, for instance, is ask questions. Well, there are two things we, we do with regard to the Sabbath. One is we ask questions about what were the um, principles that underlay the Sabbath. What were the various sorts of, th various sorts of things that God was doing that God was implementing, that God was embodying in the Sabbath requirement. Uh, and then we can ask, okay, how do I embody that in my life? And maybe you won't embody that in your life by having a straight 24 hours off. And therefore, when your parents tell you to go and do your homework, you can do it. It's okay. Uh, maybe. Uh, uh, and, and, and I don't take a straight 24 hours off. Um, but on the other hand, it does give you various warnings about um, the importance of stuff and profit, uh, about the importance of rest, about the importance of, be of there being some time that belongs to God and that you recognise that belongs to God, uh, about the importance of making it possible for other people um, to have rest uh, and to be refreshed. There are various um, significances, of the significances that the Sabbath had and so the right question is, how are those um, concerns of God's embodied in my life? Uh, now, um, one thing I do, for instance, is that each morning I do, I, sit, I, I as it were, give the, the first half hour or hour of the day to God. A bit like a Sabbath. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to do that. There's a very strong evangelical tradition of the idea of a quiet time, of a daily time like that. Um, it, it, it's actually, without realising, I think, that evangelical tradition was a, a sort of Sabbath principle being embodied in a particular way. Um, I'm giving the first part of each day to God, um, which is a, a Sabbath-ish sort of thing to do. Um, so uh, we, we aren't under legal obligation to the Sabbath, as to any law. Um, but we do need to look at why the Sabbath was important and to see that the reasons why it's important are embodied in our lives in some way. The other um, thing about, the, uh, about, about this um, sequence of texts about the Sabbath is this. It's, it's that in different contexts and different connections, the Sabbath becomes important for different reasons. 
Uh, and the sort of process of interpretation that goes on uh, in the scriptures as a whole with regard to the Sabbath is then, then seems, to me to be, to, seems to me to be very instructive. There's never any doubt that you have to observe the Sabbath within scripture. Um, uh, well, at least until Paul, uh, until you get to that point where no law is abiding upon us. But, but what, there is continue, what, what, it, what is happening continually through the Old Testament, and at least in the beginning parts of the New Testament, is working with the assumption that you observe the Sabbath, but keeping asking in new ways why you're doing that and what it means. Um, and uh, it thus has the capacity to answer different questions, deal with different issues in different contexts. So when you then come and look at our, ask the question, how does scripture apply to us? There is what I call a left brain process whereby you look at the various uh, passages about the Sabbath and you can make a list of the principles that underlie Sabbath keeping and you can do that with your left, left brain. But there's also a right brain process involved in interpretation in which, uh, to put it more um, Christianly, you seek the Holy Spirit's guidance about Okay, given that the Sabbath might well be important today, how might the Sabbath be important today in a way that it was never important in Scripture? And you can't get that by kind of logic. You can only, you can only get that by a right brain process. But it's very easy to see the answer because we, we are a totally 24-7 workaholic culture. And psych students are worse than anybody. Um, and that's because you are totally oppressed by your professors, <laughs> as well as by life itself and everything. Um, and so you're always getting ill, and you're always in danger of having nervous breakdowns, and you're losing your faith and whatnot. And that's partly because there's no, no Sabbath in your lives. Um, and, and so, whereas there was never any danger in Scripture of being workaholic... It's our big temp People sometimes say to you, say to me, they'll, they'll begin emails or conversations or phone. Or, I know you're very busy, but. Uh, I, and I always say to them, excuse me, how do you know I'm very busy? Being busy is a sin. Jesus was never busy. <laughs> um, now, they, they, they didn't have a problem with workaholism in those days. I mean, they hadn't got electric. That was one of their benefits. They had no electric light, no computers, you know, n nothing that makes life interesting. So when it, get, went to, when it, when it got dark, they went to bed. Uh, now, we are oppressed um, by the uh, great technological discoveries um, of the last 100, 200 years. We can work all the time. Uh, and we try to work all the time. So, whereas the, the, the notion that Sabbath applied to workaholism, to the 24-7 mentality, was never an idea that needed, could arise, needed to arise in scriptural times, it's a very important idea to arise in our times. And the process of biblical interpretation involves being able to make that inspired leap from seeing the different ways in which the significance of Sabbath is worked out in scripture to how it has some purchase upon us now. Um, so implications it says at the bottom of that sheet there's always new truth to break forth from John's word from God's word which um, John Robinson one of the um, Puritan uh, the Mayflower guys wasn't he or something like that um, said so um, 
the questions um, that arise from, from looking at the various passages about the Sabbath include, which of those significances of the Sabbath are especially significant for us? And I suggested that, for instance, the commercialism um, one is one. Are some of them insignificant or even misleading? Um, uh, maybe the nearest to that would be that while some of us are in danger of legalism, generally speaking in our culture, we're not in great danger of legalism. We're in danger of antinomianism rather than legalism. Um, what new implications might Sabbath have in our context? And that's the one that I've been trying to talk about in talking about the 24-7 mentality. Well, now let's have you, let, let's again, uh, by all means, talk to each other for five minutes or so um, about any of that, um, uh, about questions that people raised in their posting about why is it that it's difficult for us to keep Sabbath? Uh, and uh, what would Sabbath look like for us uh, if it wouldn't be simply stopping doing things from Friday tea time till Saturday tea time or from Saturday tea time until Sunday tea time or through the 24 hours of Sunday or whatever. Um, talk about that with each other for a few minutes.